Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 3, verses uh, 20 to 30. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. We'll begin reading in verse 20, and then we'll uh, read the whole passage and Pause and pray that God would help us to understand um, a difficult but important passage this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Then Jesus went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Super simple text this morning to work through. Uh, But let's just pray for good measure uh, that God would help us understand and apply uh, these words. Uh, Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And we plead that the same Holy Spirit that we are warned not to blaspheme against in this text, that that Holy Spirit would come and overpower our wills and overpower our, un- our misunderstanding and our weakness. And God, would you work a miracle by the Spirit to open our eyes to see and to soften our hearts to believe. And to open our ears to hear and obey the Lord of all, Father. God, I pray that in this moment you would work the miracle of speaking through your scriptures. And Father, I just pray and plead you would not let me just get in the way. May I just be a humble vessel before you who simply points to what you've already said and what you intend to do for those who trust Jesus as Lord. Help us to exalt Christ this morning. Help us to walk away with a higher view of Jesus' ministry in this world than when we first 
came in, God. Save souls, convict sinners, comfort the discouraged. Help us put our hope in Christ alone. We pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the Gospel of Mark last week, we saw Jesus' increasing popularity. People from as much as 120 miles away have traveled to see the miracle worker. And the crowds are called great. They are large crowds now tracking Jesus, trying to get near to Jesus. And we saw a scene last week uh, by the lake where Jesus has tried to escape to get alone with his disciples, but the crowds are uh, pressing in on him in such a violent manner that the text seems to suggest they were worried that they would crush Jesus. Jesus commands the disciples to have a get a boat, get away boat ready in case they must get onto the boat and flee from the situation as the crowds are clamoring for the healing that they've heard that Jesus can provide. And last week we saw this clear distinction between what the crowds were like, understanding that Jesus could provide something for them, but missing who Jesus was altogether, and uh, the difference between them and what the called were like on the mountain, what Jesus intended his disciples to be like, people who were near to him, intimate with him, following him, and then representing him to the world. And now in verse 20, the scene changes, and Jesus returns to the city from which he fled to the mountains. And the verse seems to depict that the crowd almost immediately forms again. So, so Mark chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. So Jesus is like, like true celebrity status now, Right? I mean, he's like Britney Spears in the early 2000s trying to go get a meal, right? Every, the paparazzi is, that was not in the notes, don't know why Britney Spears came to mind. Uh, uh, he is trying to eat with his friends, and he can't even eat. He, he cannot even do normal life because the crowd is pressing in around, overwhelming him. The crowds in this particular scenario, again, are not being depicted as people who get who Jesus really is and why he's there. But the sad part about this text is not the crowds who so desperately desire healing. Um, Not only do the crowds not fully understand, but what we see in verse 21 is that some of Jesus' own relatives don't get it. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. You have to remember that in the first century, there is a social power structure. There are lower class and middle class and higher class, and the higher class has the power. The Jewish religious leaders exerted power over the people. The Roman Empire had quite a bit of power and authority over the people. The religious leaders were interested in keeping control over the people, and Rome certainly was highly interested in keeping control over the people. Rome especially would have been suspicious of any large crowds gathering 
I mean, that's the stuff that riots are made of. That's the stuff that you've got to nip in the bud if you are a controller and an inhabiting empire. And here's Jesus rocking the boat of society with crowds of hundreds and even thousands flocking to him from all over the region. There's a buzz in the air about this Jesus, the miracle worker. And, and for some reason, Jesus' relatives fear all the attention that Jesus is receiving, and they begin to think that Jesus is acting foolishly. We're not told exactly who these family members are. In fact, the Greek just says those who were of Jesus, those who were close to Jesus. And we assume from the context later in the chapter that it is his family members, his relatives. Uh, but, but whoever they are, they're people who are close to Jesus, who either they really believe Jesus is just off his rocker. He's just lost his mind. He's trying to get himself killed. Like, like Jesus has gone crazy. We've got to stop this. This is hurting the family reputation. This is going to hurt Jesus in the end. Like he's drawing too much attention to himself. So either they really believe that Jesus is crazy or they are uh, spreading the rumor that he's crazy so the commotion will die down. He's just nutso. Just keep moving people. Keep passing by. Crazy guy here. You don't want to get close. Whatever the case may be, their position on Jesus, I think, represents one of three options that we find in this text when it comes to where we stand with Jesus. I think they represent, truth number one, that some think Jesus was a lunatic. You cannot deny the credibility that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. He is the most historically documented person in the history of the world. He existed. He made waves in his day that have rippled into every nation and every generation for 2,000 years. That's a fact. You can't be a thinking person and, and deny his existence based off of the evidence that we have at our disposal. Not only did, did waves begin to ripple from his time into all generations, all nations, but, but we have a count here of thousands of people coming to hear his teaching, witness his miracles, and be blessed by his healing. What, what you do with that historical information is another story. You can accuse Jesus of being crazy and self-deceived. Maybe the historical Jesus was just a self-deceived lunatic who really thought that he was God in the flesh. Who really thought he had the, the authority to forgive sins. Who really thought, uh, when he believed when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Maybe he was just a lunatic who made some crazy claims about himself. But if you go that route, you got to explain away a lot of stuff. Because not only did Jesus have to be crazy, but the thousands of people who believed him had to be crazy. His closest followers who would ultimately give their lives for him would have to be crazy. If Jesus was insane, he must have been brilliantly insane because he convinced on more than one occasion more than 5,000 people that they were eating food. That came from heaven. 
If Jesus was insane, he somehow got thousands of blind, deaf, and diseased, and disabled people to pretend that they were healed everywhere they went. People born blind must have insanely pretended to see for the rest of their lives and been really good at it. (laughs) Somehow, someway, Jesus was able to stage his own death on a Roman cross and then appear to well over 500 people in resurrection body and the grave would forever remain empty and his apostles would go on to do miracles and the church would start. That's a lot of stuff for a crazy person who just thought he was the divine son of God. Some people think that Jesus was just a lunatic, but it just doesn't fit with the facts. The accusation of the family here in verse 21, certainly doesn't fit with what we've seen of Jesus thus far. So you have this strange moment where his own relatives are accusing Jesus of being crazy. And then verse 22, just like scene changes. And there's another accusation being hurled Jesus's way. Remember, Mark often orders his um, material not necessarily chronologically, but thematically. So look at verse 22. Verse 22 summarizes the exact kind of bad press that I think Jesus' family was afraid of. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he's cast out the demons. Okay, so these scribes are not the same group that have been questioning Jesus thus far in the story. This is a newly arrived delegation from the capital city. Do you see that? The scribes who came down from Jerusalem. They're not here to simply do some research. They have come to go on the offensive against somebody who they perceive as a threat. Until this point, the local leadership has only questioned Jesus and tried to put Jesus on the defensive in public, right? Now, we have seen uh, in Austin's sermon a few weeks ago at the very end that they begin to devise secretly how they will destroy Jesus. But, but thus far, there's no sort of public sort of actual attack as severe as what we find in verse 22. These scribes from Jerusalem come out swinging as hard as they could go at Jesus. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees of the day, notice what they don't do. They don't say, he's not really working miracles. They can't say that. (laughs) The scribes and the Pharisees, they can't deny that Jesus is doing crazy stuff. They could not dispute the paralytic man now walking around in Capernaum. They couldn't argue with the leprous man now freely moving about totally cleansed. They could not debunk the fact that everybody heard the cries of the frightful demon saying he's the Holy One of God. But despite all the evidence in the world, they don't want to believe what Jesus claims about himself, so they've got to account for the signs of wonders. Do you see the sinfulness of the human heart here? You, you think in your mind, if I just had signs and wonders, if I just had evidence, I would submit to God and believe. No, you would not. Your, your heart is desperately wicked. A paralytic man could stand up in this place by the name of Jesus, and you would still love your sin more. If Christ did not move upon you and overwhelm your sinful heart. That's what's happening in this moment. 
They must accuse Jesus of something else. Truth number two, some think Jesus was a liar. See, Beelzebul was an alternative name for Satan, the, the leader of the demonic forces. The accusation is that Jesus is just putting on a show. Jesus is simply commanding the demons because he's in association with the chief demon. The accusation is, is that Jesus is a deceiver. He's actually evil. He's not leading people toward the one true God. Rather, he's leading them away from the true, one true God. This accusation is that he's seeking the destruction of his followers, not the salvation of his followers. Now, I want to pause here and, uh, for us to understand what Mark is doing by putting these two verses side by side. Smashing verse 21 and 22 together like this. So look at verse 21. Notice the similar language here. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. Two very different groups, Jesus' family and the scribes from Jerusalem. Two very different accusations. Jesus has gone crazy. Jesus is an evil liar. Now listen to what one commentator writes on the significance of this parallel. Sinclair Ferguson says this, The parallel between these two events is significant for Mark. They present us with the only possible interpretations of Jesus which are open to us. He is either mad, the family's view, or bad, the Pharisaic theologian's view, or he's what he claims to be, divine, Mark's view. And this parallel between two very different groups of people rejecting the true identity of Jesus according to their own logic, we are confronted with the question that everyone in this room and everyone in all of history has to answer. What do you think about Jesus? Where do you stand with Jesus? You must make a decision. Was he a religious lunatic? That we're just still talking about 2,000 years later. Was he a wicked liar and a deceiver and miraculously was able to trick thousands of people at a time? Is he liar, lunatic, or is he the Lord that he claims to be? Those are your options. Perhaps you're familiar with this language from the writings of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an agnostic professor of Cambridge University who was overwhelmed by the evidence, the facts, but ultimately the spirit of Christ to bring him to Christ. And he became one of the most profound Christian writers and thinkers in the 20th century. I just want you to hear the words of C.S. Lewis that have been so powerful uh, for so many years. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Either Jesus was crazy, he was evil, or he is who he said he was. He's not just a good guy with some good advice that you can generally associate with and go on to live your life however you want. These relatives are calling him crazy. The religious elite are calling him an evil. But what does Jesus call himself? Now look back at verse 23, at how Jesus responds to the accusations. Verse 23. And he called them to him and said to him in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus responds with simple logic. Come on, guys. I'm casting out demons by demonic power. Jesus essentially is looking back at the people and saying, is that the best you got? Like, that, that's the argument you're going to hurl at us to explain away what my ministry has been? How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus, what he's doing, he's pointing to his own ministry. He, he has consistently proven to be against the power of darkness, turning back the results of the fall of mankind. He's cleansing the unclean, healing the disease, fixing what is broken, undoing all the things that evil has done to this world. Simple logic says demon accusation don't work here, bro. Try again. A house divided cannot stand. Jesus is not a representative of the kingdom of darkness as he wages war against the forces of darkness. He's representative of the kingdom of light. And that's what Jesus goes on to communicate with an interesting parable. Verse 27. Jesus goes on, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Let me give you truth number three. This is what Jesus is claiming in this analogy. Then we'll break it down. Truth number three, this is what Jesus claims about himself. Jesus is Lord of all. In the analogy, there are two characters at play in a dominion or in a house. The strong man in the parable is who they accuse Jesus to be. The strong man in the house is Satan. The house is this world under the corruption and the power of evil. And Jesus is the one who came up in his house, bound him up, and did as he pleased in the house of Satan. The scribes accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. But Jesus says, no. And by this analogy, Jesus says, I came into this domain of darkness to bind up Satan 
and plunder his possessions. In other words, Jesus is saying, the incarnation, my coming into this world, is a coming into enemy territory, territory to do as I please. I came to set people free from their bondage, to heal people from their disease, to forgive people from their sin, to deliver people from their demons, to absorb death and overcome it once for all, to overcome and reverse the works of the devil. In other words, I came to bind up the one who has bound you all up and to take back for myself what is mine. I came to plunder the possessions of the evil one. There's this moment in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus claims just this in the synagogue. Luke chapter 4, verse 17, one of my favorite drop-the-mic moments in Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Jesus begins to read this prophecy from hundreds of years prior. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is Lord of all and his ministry is not of the devil it's a devil plundering work satan has proven too strong for us but jesus came to prove that he's too strong for the devil first john chapter 3 verse 8 says the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil when satan tempted adam and eve with the fruit they gave in to the temptation when satan tempted jesus for 40 days though he'd not eaten a thing jesus overcame the temptation he's the new and better adam to come do away with the snake in the garden Colossians chapter 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Your very salvation is a product of Jesus' plundering. Without Christ, you were enslaved to your sin. You were a follower of Satan. You were a child of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, this is where we're all, we're all at. Dead in our sins and our trespasses in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is our condition, much like the Pharisees, dead spiritually. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Jesus is Lord of all, and his ministry is a devil-plundering ministry. Verse 27 of Mark chapter 3, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Verse 21, the family tries to seize Jesus and bind him up as a crazy person. Verse 22, the scribes try to destroy him and his reputation by way of accusation. But in verse 27, we learn it's Jesus who does the binding. It's Jesus who does the seizing. It's Jesus who does the destroying. He is Lord. And now, having established this is who I am, Jesus directs 
his attention back at these accusers with these words in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now there's several things in this passage worth breaking down and trying to discern the big point. First, I want you to notice what the plundering work involves. I think this sentence is a connection to the analogy. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. I need, I need you to just sit on that mo- for just a moment. What did Jesus say? All sins of the children of man will be forgiven. You know what all sins in the Greek means? All sins. Do you hear the scandalous grace that Jesus is bringing to the table? What has Jesus just said? Jesus just said, all criminals, all murderers, all adulterers, prostitutes, drug addicts, drunkards, sex abusers, terrorists, egomaniacs are all eligible for the forgiveness because of what I came to do. There is no amount of sin, no degree of sin that is more powerful than the saving grace of Jesus. Jesus binds the strong man of sin and guilt and shame and death and the devil himself. He sets free every person who will turn to him and trust. And he goes on to say, whatever blasphemies they utter. If you remember in our discussion a few weeks ago, Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy because he was claiming to be God. Blasphemy is the sin of intentionally defying and make a mockery of God. It was a sin punishable by death in ancient Israel. And Jesus says, whatever blasphemies you're guilty of in your life, they will be forgiven. All sins are forgiven. But here's the the difficulty of the text. If you just stopped there, it's like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. All sins forgiven except one. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Truth number four, Jesus forgives all sins but one. Jesus says there's one thing you can never have forgiveness for. And he names this thing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. An eternal sin, meaning that the consequences to this are eternal. Now this sentence has caused a great deal of distress in the minds and the hearts of many who begin to wonder whether they themselves have somehow intentionally or unintentionally committed this particular sin, whatever it may be, of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There is terror that this verse has caused 
when taken as a singular verse out of the context of not only this passage, but the entire Bible. And people have been kept up at night because of fear and thought that they may have committed this, and now there's no, there's, that's it, it's over. No more forgiveness for you because you did this. But according to this passage and the context of this passage, is this eternal sin an individual sin or moment of sinning that we're in danger of committing as Christians? Well, here, this is what I want you to think through the context. First of all, okay, what is it? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God? We've already been told by Mark in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is the one who has the very power to immerse people in the Holy Spirit. Now, now we know from the full biblical witness that when a Christian puts faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God immerses us into the blessings of Christ. We're made new by the Spirit. We're born again by the Spirit. We're empowered by the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit. Acts 2, uh, when Peter's speaking about the Holy Spirit coming on the people, he says, is Jesus up in heaven pouring out the Spirit on what you're seeing right now? Acts chapter 2, verse 33, this Jesus God raised up we're all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God having received the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing only those who have faith in Jesus receive the blessing of the spirit in their lives but what does blasphemy of the Holy Spirit mean well Mark gives us a little bit I wish he gave us more he gave us a little bit <laughs> right here in verse 30 But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, for, okay, logical connection word, for, let me, this is what they did, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So according to Mark, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sin that the scribes were committing in their accusation of Jesus. They're accusing Jesus of performing his works by the power of Satan. They're rejecting Jesus as Lord. The sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the sin of rejecting Jesus as Lord. And that is the sin. That is not forgiven. It's the hardening of the heart to the degree where you will never turn, no matter what evidence you have, you will never submit to who Jesus says he is. Faith in Jesus as Jesus has revealed himself is something that you will never do. Now, should you worry about whether you accidentally committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in your life in such a way that it cannot be undone? Absolutely not. This is not some kind of one-and-done act that you're in danger of, some sort of hole you can trip and fall into and never get out. The whole biblical witness rejects the kind of interpretation of this verse that should strike panic and fear into God's blood-bought children. When you li listen carefully to Paul's words in 1 Timothy, if you think, oh, I've done it, it's over, I, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I can never repent. I can never be forgiven. It's over for me. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. This is Paul's story. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy. 
and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. I I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. Paul was killing Christians. He wanted to eradicate Christianity. If you don't get more against Jesus, I don't know how you get more against Jesus than that, right? I want to obliterate the entire religion by killing their followers. Is there more than that? (laughs) Is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit something beyond that? Yet yet Paul says, Christ saved me as a testimony to all you, St. Rosians, 2,000 years away. If you think you're worse than me, you're wrong. I receive grace, you can receive grace. You've not committed the the act of the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it cannot go backwards. So, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not this sort of kind of one and done act that, that you can slip into and never get out. But it is the sin that the scribes in the passage are committing. It's the sin of hardening one's heart against Jesus and rejecting the saving work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus offers. Uh, uh, let me read one quote that I thought was helpful as I was studying this by an uh, author by the name of David Mathis. He says this. He says, It's not that they may be genuinely repentant, but, but given the stiff arm but that they will never have forgiveness because they never meet the simple, invaluable, soft-hearted condition for it. Repentance! For Christians today, we need not fear a specific moment of sin, but a kind of hardness of heart that would see Jesus as true, yet walk away. With a kind of hardness of heart incapable of repenting. Again, it's not that forgiveness isn't granted, but that it's not sought. The heart has become so, uh, so reluctant and at such odds with God's spirit that it becomes incapable of true repentance. I came across this one sentence in a commentary this week that just floored me. It's a short sentence, and it, and it was just this. There's no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. If you're someone that's like worried about whether you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, stop worrying and trust Christ. <laughs> if you're capable of trusting Christ, you haven't committed the act of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Stop freaking out and trust Jesus. And, and the evidence of your freaking out, the evidence of your conviction over sin, might be evidence that the Spirit's working in your heart to draw you to Christ. Amen. The unforgivable sin is the sin of not asking Jesus and not receiving from Jesus the forgiveness that he promises. So let me give you a recap. Some think Jesus was a lunatic. Some think Jesus was a liar. Jesus is Lord of all. And Jesus forgives all sins but one. If this is true, if people's eternity depends on whether they trust Jesus as Lord, what does this mean for you in the room? If Jesus is Lord, not a liar, not a lunatic, and if he offers free grace to all who believe, no matter how evil they've been in their life, what does this mean for you in the room? Let me leave you with three takeaways. Number one, simple, (laughs) trust Jesus as Lord. Your choices are clear, 
liar, lunatic, or Lord of all who bore the penalty for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. To label him as just some guy who taught some good things and did some cool stuff simply won't work. So humble yourselves before the Lord this morning and trust him with your life. Number two, rest in Jesus as Savior. This passage testifies to the all-encompassing grace of Christ to forgive every type of sin, no matter degree, no matter depth. Christian, all your sins, whatever blasphemies you've uttered this week, all your uncleanness have been washed away by the power of the blood sacrifice of King Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And number three, join Jesus in the plundering. Jesus came to bind the enemy and plunder his house and the plundering still going on with every soul that is saved with every sin that is repented of with every word of praise that is exalted to king jesus rather than to the prince of the power of the air there's a plundering of the kingdom of darkness going on an expanding of the kingdom of light going on in this moment in this room there are literally literally in this room christ plundering by drawing your heart to worship christ as king There are literally thousands of people who live and work and play all around you every single day who do not know Jesus as Lord and will not know salvation unless they hear and believe the good news of Jesus. Join in the plundering. Share the good news of Jesus and watch Jesus do the work in the hearts and the lives of the lost. In a world that says all roads lead to God, we at this church must be a people of boldness who declares there is only one way to God. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work by the power of the Spirit to help us to exalt the Son in this moment. I pray for the people in this room that they would trust Jesus as Lord, rest in Jesus as Savior, and they would join the plundering work of expanding the kingdom of light into this dark and broken world. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask that you help us worship now in Jesus' name. Amen.